Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're going to be talking about Yoshiko Kawashima, a military commander, spy and socialite active around the time of the Second World War. Before we begin, I have some content warnings. This episode contains mentions of the following things. Abuse of a teenager by an adoptive parent, including potential sexual abuse. Brief reference to drug use. Mention of the Japanese occupation of China. A brief reference to a relationship between an adult and a minor and execution by firing squad. If you would prefer not to hear any of those things, feel free to skip this episode. Just a little bit of brief background about my sources. The vast majority of my material about Yoshiko's life comes from the 2015 biography Manchu Princess Japanese Spy by Phyllis Birnbaum. Phyllis is a journalist, biographer, and a Japanese translator, which gave her access to primary sources such as Yoshiko's letters and diaries and newspaper articles from the time, which some of which I technically could have accessed, but the time that it would have taken me reading the Japanese would not be worth it. Would not have been worth it. In general, finding out the facts about Yoshiko's life is a little bit complicated by the existence of a 1933 novel called, the translated title is The Beauty in Men's Clothing, which stars a protagonist called Mariko in a semi-fictional version of Yoshiko's life, basically, and which just frequently gets treated as fact. Unfortunate. It's largely not fact. It's, it's not, like, completely out of nowhere, but it sort of wildly embellishes Yoshiko's spy activities and that kind of thing. So this biography, 2015 biography you read, did that handle this earlier yes. book well? I think that, yeah, Phyllis did a good job of at least telling me whenever information she was using was coming from that book. Like, okay. whenever she was like, this is a thing that we're told happened in Yoshiko's life, this is where that information came from, it was in the book. To be fair, Beauty in Men's Clothing was written with Yoshiko's knowledge and the author lived with them for a couple of months. Oh, okay. While, like, gathering information about their life. So it's not like Yoshiko was not on board with what went out in this book, but it was not true. Like, it was <laughs> It was absolutely, like, it was absolutely fictional and inspired by. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know. yeah. Finally, a note about pronouns. As you can probably tell already, um, I've chosen to use gender-neutral pronouns for Yoshiko because their gender presentation shifted a number of times throughout their life, and I wasn't prepared to make calls about their gender identity based on the information that I had. However, I can see that I made this decision fairly late in the piece. I feel like that's the way often, not always, but often yeah. that's the way where you're just like, I just couldn't decide for so long, and then I got to the end and I was like, I guess we'll be saying they. It more like it very much reads people like people tend to take it like Yoshiko had this brief period where they presented as a man and other than that were a woman. And okay. when you actually go into the details, that's not really what's happening. Okay. Yoshiko just kind of continuously like walks like a sort of androgynous mm -hmm. boundary area. The other last thing I want to do before I start. <laughs> the other final thing. The other final thing is just give you a quick rundown on the various names that Yoshiko goes by or is referred to throughout their life. I'm mostly going to be using Yoshiko because one, that's the choice that Phyllis made. And two, that's the name that Yoshiko 
personally used for most of their life, but it is not the name they were born with. They were named Shan Yu at birth, which is a Manchurian name. Manchuria is, at the moment, like a province in the northeast of China. It's like near Mongolia, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It like borders on Mongolia. Yoshiko also had a Mandarin name, which comes up occasionally, like in the materials about their trial, which is Jin Bihui. Jin is a direct translation into Mandarin of their surname. Bihui, I don't know where that came from. It's just a different first name. I see. After moving to so after moving to Japan as like an eight-year-old, Yoshiko gets given the name Yoshiko and the surname Kawashima, which is generally what they go through throughout their life, except for a brief period where they went by the masculine first name. In addition, in China in this period, members of the elite had an extra name. Yeah, they have a courtesy name, which is essentially something people will refer to as as like a marker of respect. So like your friends and family wouldn't, but others would. Okay. Um, and Yoshiko's courtesy name is Dongzhen, which literally means Eastern Jewel, which means that Western media always calls them Eastern uh, yes. Jewel because that sounds cool and catchy. Ah, yes. And um, Eastern. Yeah. So if you want to look further into this person, <laughs> Google those things. <laughs> you can Google a bunch of things. So Yoshiko also gets referred in Western media with various sort of exotic monikers like Eastern Matahari and Joan of Arc of the Orient. Cool. Is that in reputable sources or in <laughs> in like the media, would you say? In like newspapers yeah. at the time. Oh, generally. at the time even. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. have we got, we don't do that anymore? I would generally <laughs> don't do that anymore, but you'll see it in like the titles of things sometimes yeah. still. I was going to say, I would believe an online article has the title Joan of Arc of yeah. the East or something. Yeah, very easily. Yeah, you still sort of see it in the titles of less reputable things. Mm-hmm. In general, I've chosen to refer to them as Yoshiko literally from the minute they receive the name. Now we get to get on to their actual life. <laughs> they were born Shen Yu to the Isingyoro family on the 24th of May 1907. The Isingyoro were the imperial family of the Qing dynasty. So the Qing dynasty is like the final mm-hmm. dynasty of the Chinese empire. To give you like a general sense, the Qing dynasty falls in 1912. Okay. And what year were they born? 1907. Well, that's unfortunate, I suppose. (laughs) Poor timing. Shen Yu's father, Shen Qi, held like a fairly significant position in the imperial government, but he's not a close heir to the throne or anything. Okay. Um, So Shen Yu is not like in line to be the empress or anything like that. Mm. So Shen Yu was one of 38 children spread between Shen Qi's wife and his four concubines. Okay. That's still a lot of children. So that's a total of five women. Five women, 38 children. 38 children. That's still almost eight kids each. Yes. It's a lot of kids. And I assume there were like a bunch of pregnancies that were miscarriages and stuff because that's how life was back then. So like, yeah. yikes. What a horny man. Like, <laughs> what a life. Um, I was trying to think of like other way of saying that and I was like, no, like that's what I mean. Like what a high was- sex drive on that man. One <laughs> moment, like one in the book where Phyllis was talking about when the family moved from Beijing after the fall of the Qing dynasty. Um, They moved from Beijing to Lushan, which is in Manchuria, and they got this house. It's like a mansion, but it's much smaller than their imperial so- palace. And they had to set up like a children's dormitory in there. <laughs> so they all like lived together as a family, like all yeah. total 43 people. 
Yeah, they all seem to be living as like a large family, basically. Okay. That um, would be such chaos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was another thing that um, apparently he was very good at running a household. He must you would have, have been. to be. So, in late 1911, the Qing dynasty was ousted by a popular uprising called the Xinhai Revolution. And in early 1912, the last Qing emperor, Puyi, who you may know from that one movie, The Last Emperor. <laughs> I was literally <laughs> picturing the actor in that. He's yeah. like a little kid. Yeah, when he's, he's like six years old and he abdicated. Yeah, it's picturing time. that child actor in his really fancy hat. Yeah. Yeah. Shanxi at this time, with the help of the Japanese, took his family out of Beijing and fled to Manchuria, which was then under Japanese control. Is this like when other dynasties fall and now they might die? They might die. They might go to prison. It might just be a worse and less stable life for them. Okay. You know. Yeah. Okay. So with Manchuria, like, obviously, like, they have some Manchurian ancestry. But is Manchuria like their home, or is Manchuria like we've never actually lived here before? Like they're still quite like closely linked culturally to Manchuria. Mm-hmm. I don't know honestly whether this family specifically had lived in Manchuria before. They're still quite yeah, they're still quite like culturally Manchurian, which is one of those reasons that the Qing Dynasty was unpopular at this point. Oh yeah, because not only was it kind of unsuccessful, <laughs> it was kind of impotent at this point. Um, but also most like much of the public perceived it to be kind of an foreign rule yeah like foreign rule from manchuria mm-hmm. even though they'd been you know the Qing dynasty they've been ruling since the 1600s i guess that's sort of relatable to our situation <laughs> yeah i was gonna say you can have like foreign rule for a long time and it's still foreign rule that's true that's true shanxi shen yu's father hopes to establish a sort of joint manchurian mongolian independent state through which he would be able to retake china for the Qing dynasty so when you say a joint Manchurian-Mongolian state, is yeah. he going to be in charge of that state? Like how? Um, I think he imagined that he was going to like put the Qing emperor back in place, uh, like okay, reassume yeah. his position. The six-year-old. Okay. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. What's the six-year-old doing at this time? Where is he? Um, you don't have to ask. That. He goes to Manchuria later on. I don't know where he is right now. Okay, so a lot of them have fled to Manchuria and they're kind of planning yeah. a return. Yeah, he goes to Manchuria some years later. Right now, he's six. I think he's allowed to stay in the imperial palace for I think, a while after after abdicating. I think he was for quite a few years. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really just hard to be angry at a emperor slash king figure when they're six. Yeah, yeah, I presume that that's what happened. The revolutionaries were like, well... It's a baby. <laughs> it's a baby. <laughs> yeah, like, you can be angry at the family, but, like, yeah, Puyi's a child. Yeah, Shanxi hoped to retake China from this imaginary state that he was going to set up. <laughs> bold. Very bold. The impression that I get is that he was not very good at running an insurrection. Aww. He's got a household of 42 people to focus yeah. on, so maybe he should just concentrate um, his energies there. And the Japanese supported him in the hope that they would be able to set him up as part of the government of the Manchurian puppet state that they were planning to use to take China. I see this is going to be a political machinations episode. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, a little, a little. That's the political situation there. That's why the Japanese assisted them with their escape to Manchuria. Um, but obviously the children know nothing about this at this stage. Yeah, they're um, busy being small and busy legion. being <laughs> small. Um, most of the children recall their time in Manchuria at this time as being a positive part of their life. It was much less like luxurious than their home had been in the Imperial Palace, but you know they were able to be freer, spend more time outside. Having 37 siblings does sound like it could be very fun. <laughs> that aside, so the children are having a pretty nice time in Manchuria. 
Um, Shanxi believed that Japanese schooling was of higher quality than Chinese schooling, which was a fairly common sort of belief among the elite at the time. China was perceived as fairly like socially or culturally backwards. Mm-hmm. Was that by like the Qing, like the like Manchurian people, or just like in general? By like the Chinese elite in general, there was this okay. sort of perception because like European colonists had come in and sort of economically dominated China at this stage. Oh, yeah. Um, and Japan meanwhile had just managed to like absolutely smash Russia in a naval battle. Ah yes. Um, do you remember Port Arthur? Yes I remember this from when we did yeah. Russian history well, at school. they have moved the Chinese family lives in Lushun which is Port Arthur. Oh okay so they're literally in the place where Japan's just absolutely like dominated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it belongs to Japan at the moment because of that. And so there's definitely there's this sort of general perception that in order to like keep up with society you need either a Japanese or a European education Oh, yeah. So all of the children were taught by Japanese tutors in, like, Japanese language and cultural arts. They were all taught archery, apparently, amongst other things. It's like a small army. (laughs) This is how they all put the emperor back on there. (laughs) I guess this was his plan all along. In 1915, when Shen Yu was eight years old, for reasons that aren't 100% clear, they were sent to live with Shanxi's friend Kawashima Naniwa in Japan. There are a bunch of possible reasons for this. Naniwa was childless and <laughs> Shanxi had 38 children. <laughs> it just makes sense. Um, Naniwa was also a uh, like, co-conspirator in this Manchurian state plot that they have going on. So it's possible that they were trying to like strengthen like alliances between them. Oh yeah. Can you imagine how wild it would seem having 38 children and knowing someone who had none children? And having none children and knowing someone who had 38 <laughs> children. <laughs> yeah, imagine your friend with 38 children. <laughs> They'd just be like, can I like have one? <laughs> Presumably that's what happened. Naniwa wrote and was like, can I have a child? And Shenzhou was like, you know what, why not? Shen uh, Yu does like remain connected to their Chinese family mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. some extent for their whole life. So it's not like a complete giveaway. Yeah, um, giveaway. Yeah. Free child. Shen Yu's feelings about this at the time were complicated. Their oldest brother remembers them crying and saying they didn't want to go. And as an adult, they recall saying that one day they were asleep in their bed in their father's mansion and the next day I found myself in Japan. I was taken away without knowing what was happening to me. But on other occasions, Shen Yu remembers, or Yoshiko as an adult, remembers being excited to hear that they were going to Tokyo. I think it's easy to imagine a child like having all those feelings. Yeah. Even any person having all those feelings at once. Like, it's it's exciting to go to a new place, but you have to leave your family behind. Like, yeah, I remember like when I was reading, it was sort of presented as this contradiction, and I was like, no, I feel like that makes sense for how you would feel going to a new home at eight years yeah. old. This um happens in like any standard fantasy novel, and <laughs> is met with those exact emotions. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to pause here to just give you a quick summary of Naniwa Kawashima, who is about to become Yoshiko's adoptive father. He's kind of a mess as a person, honestly. <laughs> oh, I know. He was known for his his belligerence and his temper and he had a lot of idealistic notions about the Manchurian Mongolian independent state that he was going to be involved in setting up which were really not sort of backed up by any concrete planning Mm -hmm. he had like he sort of thought he was going to go to China and win fame and glory by helping to set up this state which then Japan could watch over in a kind of patronizing. To give you a sense of the kind of nonsense plans that he comes up with here's a brief summary 
of one of Naniwa's plans to establish an entire new nation. <laughs> in 1889, Naniwa and two friends set off to Manchuria. They all dressed as Chinese labourers and each took a pistol and a katana. Okay. <laughs> Their vague plan was that first they would win over the hearts of the Manchurian people, who they would live alongside and raise livestock in harmony, and then they would be able to persuade local gangs of roaming bandits to join their cause, at which point they would be powerful enough to take on Russia. You know what this is making me think of? This is making me think of Daenerys Targaryen in, like, the early Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, oh, yeah. She's like, oh, come in, the people will love which me. Which really only worked because dragons. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help but noticing that Naniwa doesn't have dragons to he back this up. He does not have dragons, um, and that plan did not, did not work out. He had a falling out with his Chinese guide after they refused to let him have a taste of their steamed bun. Oh my god. <laughs> Look, I do love steamed bun. <laughs> um, I can understand. And yeah, the So plan... over a steamed bun, this hypothetical empire was lost. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, my um, one of those alternate history books. But in spite of him being this person, um, he took on several of Shanxi's children temporarily at various times. Okay. Because I think Shanxi had sort of an idea that they would become civilized by going to Japan, and Naniwa had this sort of idea that he was, you know, saving them from uncivilized China as well. There's a lot of sort of colonialist views mm, about yes. China from Japan at this time. I can see this. Yes. What can I say? But yikes. Yeah, it's it's a bit it's a bit yikes. We don't know a lot about Yoshiko's childhood in Japan. Upon becoming a member of Naniwa's family, they were given the name Yoshiko. Um, apparently they were originally given the Japanese name Yoshio, which is a masculine name, but then Naniwa was like, no, people might perceive that as a bit weird. Let's go with Yoshiko. Why were they given it in the first place? I think he just thought that he had this idea that Yoshiko was going to be like a key sort of a key figure in his reclaim Manchuria scheme. And I think he just thought Yoshio was like a powerful and heroic name. And so he was like, I'll give this to the child that I've just been sent. And then he was like, wait, people seem to think that's a bit weird. Does um, Naniwa have like a partner? Or is it just like Naniwa? Naniwa has a wife whose name is Fuku, but his wife has a lot of mental health issues oh, okay. and doesn't play a particularly big role in the, the raising of the child or in the sort of like household in general. They don't sound necessarily ideally set up to raise a child. No, they're very much not. They're very much not. It's true. Yoshiko was generally referred to as Naniwa's adopted daughter, but he never had them entered in the family register, so they were never legally a part of the household. It's not really clear why. It might have had something to do with Naniwa and Shanchi's plans for Yoshiko to play some mysterious significant role in the Manchurian revolution they were planning in the future. So it may have been important for Yoshiko to like maintain that mm. like Chinese citizenship. Or he may have just never got around to it. We don't really know. <laughs> but we do know it never happened. It seems likely that there's some, like, far-fetched plan behind it. Yeah. He does sound like a man with a lot of schemes. And he very much kind of raises Yoshiko, kind of, like, inculating in them the idea that they're going to be the saviour of China. This is, like, such the a The hero's weird... journey. Yeah. It's, like, such a, like, weirdly, like, fantasy novel-esque, like, you're sent away to live with this different family and you're raised to think you're really important and, like, winning the kingdom back and like it very much is like that yeah. it really is some Daenerys Daenerys Targaryen stuff <laughs> it is it's it's like something out of a fantasy novel we do know a few things about like what Yoshiko was like at school in this time they were a disruptive but lonely student 
In a letter at the time, they wrote, My clowning ruins the study time of the other students, but I and my enemies will laugh at this in my heart. I'm not enjoying myself. Aww. They arrived at school on horseback, which was very uncommon, especially for someone assigned female at birth. Another student is quoted later on saying, Only important officials from the local military base, like the battalion commander or the company commander, rode horseback. The only woman who rode horseback was Yoshiko. I guess they're not driving at this time. Like, what year are we in? Uh... Still like 19, 1915 to 20 kind of. Oh yeah, like I can't imagine that driving to school was the norm, so I guess they're walking. Yeah, I guess they're walking. Maybe there are carts, I don't really know. Yeah. Um, but apparently just like riding horseback was quite notable. The students remembered it. The other students remembered it as being like a spectacular sight, Yoshiko in their riding clothes on horseback. Added to this, the other students remember that Yoshiko tended to use like shockingly rough masculine language compared to what was expected of a young girl in Japan at this time. Time, we'd respectfully address our teachers as sensei, but Yotago would call out to them like, hey you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't unfortunately have the original language in that quote because I would have found it funny. Yeah, I was wondering that. But that's how Phyllis translated it. So Yotago generally was quite notable at school, but didn't really fit in. As I mentioned before, anti-Chinese racism was common. Yoshiko refused to attend Asian history class after the first class because of the teacher's denigrating remarks about China and Chinese people. So instead, they wagged class to drink tea with the janitor. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I think I could be friends with Yoshiko. But that's about all we know about what Yoshiko was like at that time, in those sort of like late childhood, early teen years. Mm -hmm. In 1922, both of Yoshiko parents died. Their original parents, not their adoptive Japanese parents, and so they returned to Manchuria for the funerals. Upon returning to Japan, the school that they had attended had a new principal who, unlike the previous one, insisted on Yoshiko going through the usual enrollment process, which they could not do as they weren't registered with the household. So they could essentially no longer attend the school. On hearing this, Naniwa went into a fit of temper and declared that if the principal was so xenophobic that he wouldn't have a Chinese student student in his school, fine, he would educate Yoshiko at home. Do, do you know like if that attitude of the principal was coming from like racism or was it literally just like you don't have the paperwork? It may have been racism, it may have been that Yoshiko was kind of known for stirring trouble. The principal later on there's a quote where years later he's like, yeah I stand by my decision, I kind of washed our hands of this disruptive student, oh, like okay. this problem. But whether the problem was that Yoshiko was Chinese or Yoshiko was just a problem student, yeah. it's hard to say. Otherwise viewing a student as a problem is a bad principle. That's yeah, true. absolutely. So this gave Naniwa the opportunity to, as I mentioned earlier, kind of induct Yoshiko into his plans for an independent Manchurian state and encourage them to see themselves as an important figure in these plans and a kind of saviour of their people. And he's quoted saying, Yoshiko has an interest in matters like the problems in China and Asia and aspires to be like that mannish western Joan of Arc. So she has characteristics that make her unsuited to the life of an ordinary Woman. So the Joan of Arc comparisons start early, I see. Yeah, they very much do. They're really being pushed into being a certain type of person, which is interesting. Yeah, it's a very it's a very strange childhood. Yeah. And it's very much like it sort of looks like um, Naniwai has this sort of plan for Yoshiko as a saviour of China, but no concrete plan ever eventuates that he has anything to do with. Everything you've said so far, there's been no mention at all of like how Yoshiko's going to save China. Like, what are they going to do? I mean, I guess his plan is about as good as his other Save China plan. Is is he training Yoshiko to, like, hate steamed buns? To, like, (laughs) give them an edge? (laughs) 
I do not know. <laughs> he gives some lectures where instead of learning like math or whatever, he's just like, now sometimes you're really going to want a steamed bun. And I cannot stress this enough. Write it down. You're just going to have to let it go. <laughs> and Yoshiko is like, steamed bun? <laughs> yeah, presumably. He also hired a home tutor for Yoshiko. This tutor was perhaps the only close source of affection that Yoshiko found in this part of their life. It was a relationship that would last between the two of them for a lifetime. And many years later, Yoshiko described their old tutor as the only person who will truly mourn that I am gone. It also put Yoshiko in the firing line of Naniwa's infamous temper. Um, Yoshiko wrote in a letter to one of their tutors that Naniwa was physically abused of saying, I was hit today. I just serve as an outlet for his anger. When he gets angry at others, he has gotten into the habit of hitting me. At this point, and I'm going to give just like a little extra content warning because it's such a short section. This next section has a mention of sexual assault in it. If you want to skip like a minute of content, listeners, you'll probably miss that entirely. Um, we can put timestamps. We can put timestamps, yeah. Yoshiko may also have been sexually abused by Naniwa. The heroine of the beauty in men's clothing, Mariko, is sexually abused by her adoptive father as a 17-year-old. And like many other events in the novel, this gets accepted as fact. It's also backed up by recollections from Yoshiko's oldest brother, Shen Li, who said Kawashima Naniwa wanted to get his hands on Yoshiko. He was in love with Yoshiko, who was 40 years younger. I'd heard from Yoshiko that Kawashima had really been after her. She had cried and complained to me about this. While Yoshiko never spoke overtly or publicly about this sexual assault, which they speak publicly about all kinds of things in their life, they're quite a public figure later on, they also did nothing to defend their adoptive father from the accusation when it came up in Beauty and Men's Clothing. The only reason I remain kind of leery about the accusation is that in like accounts of Yoshiko's life in China and Japan, until today, it's often perceived as a cause of Yoshiko's decision to begin having an unconventional gender presentation. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to bring up that I don't think that that follows. Like, it's not Yoshiko was sexually assaulted and so they decided to change their gender. Mm. I mean, if anything, like, you've already given us the indication that they were sort of more masculine in their yeah. presentation. Mm-hmm. Um. I don't think, though, like, from the evidence you've given us coming from the book, that we know they mm. kind of had, like, some influence over our relationship with the yeah. author and also from what their brothers said, like, it doesn't seem like those are sources which would be yeah. deciding to say this because they're seeking an explanation for Yoshiko's gender presentation. I would not question the accusations, rather I would just question how they yeah used. i would question that like causation like what gets yes. what gets said like another paper that i read this is saeki chizuru in the asian journal of women's studies wrote naniwa started looking at her as a woman and chased her day and night at home which was a nightmare for her as a means of protecting naniwa yoshiko shaved her head and decided to become a man was there a citation um, <laughs> i'm wondering was there in yoshiko's diary in 1924 there's this entry where they say that bringing a woman has that being a woman has brought them nothing but trouble and they've decided to become a man like it does not mention the reasoning behind that and we also know they had several unwanted suitors at this time so there are other things that they could be referring to mm-hmm. in terms of nothing but trouble they could just be referring to personal unhappiness mm-hmm. yeah it's not really clear mm-hmm. So according to Yoshiko's diary, on the evening of October 6th, 1924, they decided to become a man. 
So on the morning of October 10th, they dressed up in a traditional woman's kimono, put their hair up in a feminine style, and did a photo shoot in a field of blooming flowers in order to, in their own words, farewell my life as a woman. That evening, they went to a barbershop and asked for a buzz cut. I like how they did this, like, photo shoot to, like, farewell being a woman. Yeah. That's pretty neat. I think that's pretty cool. There were, like, those photos were available, I think, off the top of my head. They were in the book, in that, like, photo section in the middle. Oh, yeah, we should put them on our blog. Is there a photo of their new haircut? Yes. There are photos of them in their new haircut also. Nice, nice, nice. And in masculine clothing. Did you feel I cut all my hair off to kinship with Yoshiko? I did. Good, I did. Good, 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 good. Irene had very long hair and then got rid of it all. Yeah, there is a photo of Yoshiko in the November 27th, 1925 edition of Asahi, the Japanese newspaper, with their buzzed hair and a boy's university uniform. Um, I don't, they never attended university, <laughs> to be clear. We think it belongs belong to their brother. Oh yeah, that, that makes, makes sense. sense then. So several scholars point to this as evidence that Yoshiko has the dates of their transformation wrong because it's the year later, it's 1925. But I don't think that's plausible. I think it's more likely that it just they wore short hair and masculine clothing for at least a year. Didn't like they did this on and off throughout their life. Didn't we have a diary? Andrew? Yeah, exactly. That's not how a diary works. <laughs> I don't know whether they, like, put the year in their diary or not, oh, but yeah. they were, like, very sure that the diary entry was from October 6th, 1924, and I'm like, maybe they just had short hair for at least a year after that. You can buzz your hair multiple times. It is possible. Um, not for Irene, but in general it is. <laughs> <laughs> Only because you had her clippers. Yeah, I did do. Yeah, yeah, this is true. <laughs> this is true. Later on about this part of their life, this is when they went by the name Ryosuke as well, which they didn't go by for their whole life. It was just this period mm-hmm. even though they sort of continued to inhabit a kind of somewhat masculine gender presentation at various times throughout their life this is the only time that they went by a masculine name as well but later on yoshiko would say about themselves i was born with what the doctors call a tendency towards the third sex and so i cannot pursue an ordinary woman's goals in life sounds pretty trans yeah <laughs> i i don't think that yoshiko is a woman i don't think yoshiko thinks that either from no it does not seem to be yeah. even none Aniwa said, I wouldn't say that Yoshiko is asexual, but rather blessed by nature with both male and female aspects. Okay, Sorry. so I guess when when you say asexual, they're like I a think, plant. Not uh, yeah, like I think that person. they mean like without physical sex. Oh, yeah. Characteristics, I guess. That's, again, this is Phyllis's translation. Like, we have enough trouble talking about gender and sex in English. Mm. And, you know, I don't know what kind of words they have in Japanese, but I feel like it's very hard to translate something like that, probably. So the next thing we hear from Yoshiko is in 1927, Kawashima Naniwa moved his family to Dalian in China, but returned three weeks later without Yoshiko. The newspapers reported rumours that they had split or cut ties. So the newspapers report on Yoshiko on and off just Mm. because Yoshiko is like a minor Manchurian princess living in Japan. And the Japanese newspapers find this kind of exciting. Yeah, okay, Um, I see that. And Yoshiko is also a bit scandalous just by like cutting off their hair and wearing men's clothing and that Mm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So they do periodically report on Yoshiko. So the newspapers reported that they had cut ties or had some kind of falling out. But soon after, the news came out that in fact Yoshiko had remained in China in order to get married. To whom? So, their husband was to be a man called Gunjajab, the son of a Mongolian independence leader who had lived with Naniwa for some time when he and Yoshiko were teenagers. Is Mongolia part of China at this time? 
No, it belongs to the Soviet Union. In this period, so between like 1912, the fall of the Qing Dynasty, and 1921, parts of Mongolia change hands between Russia and China at various times. Okay. But anyway, Ganjajab is a Mongolian, and the two had been exchanging letters at various times ever since. Honestly, this seems like a more concrete step towards Naniwa's supposed plan that I thought But anything that has <laughs> ever happened, yeah. Yeah. When you said the two had been exchanging letters, did you mean Naniwa and Ganjajab? No, Yoshi. Yoshiko and Ganjajab have been writing to each other. Are they like friends? Yeah, they seem to be friends. In October 1927, the wedding occurred. It was officiated by a Japanese military official and attended by a number of other like important Japanese military officials. What a weird vibe. Yeah, Phyllis suggests that those kind of people wouldn't have been in attendance if they didn't think that it was a sort of significant political alliance between Mm. a Manchu princess and a Mongolian independence leader's son. Yeah. So there may have been some political motive behind this union. Can I just ask where the emperor is? The the formerly six-year-old. <laughs> oh. Like, is he, like, relevant still? No, he's not really relevant okay. at this time. He will make a reappearance later. Okay. He does, like, crawl out of the woodwork later to do some small-scale emperoring. But presumably not actually crawl because he's no longer a baby. Yeah, when he's, when he's bigger, he will return. Um, But right now, he's just kind of out of the way. Okay, well, cool. Because I guess he's kind of hypothetically part of this plan to make a kingdom, or is he not? Yeah, he is. Okay, he cool. Is part of plan. Yes. Um, Yoshiko would claim later on that they had been forced into the marriage, that it was arranged when they were ill and upon recovering, they were just told, you're getting married now, Yoshiko. They recounted walking out on the ceremony at one point and being like persuaded back in and said that when Ganjajab had tried to put a wedding ring on their finger, they had brushed it away and it had fallen to the floor and got lost. How profoundly awkward for <laughs> him. <laughs> to be clear, there's a wedding photo of the two of them. Yoshiko is there in traditional Mongolian wedding attire, so feminine presenting again, and wearing the wedding ring. I don't think the fact that there's a photo of their wedding and they're wearing a ring really discounts anything Yoshiko said, because, you know, I it's will... very easy to rustle up a ring for a photo. Yeah. So the wedding ring does appear in the photo, and... Yoshiko's oldest brother, who was responsible for giving Yoshiko permission to marry following the death of their father, recalls that Yoshiko wrote to him and said, Ganjajab keeps sending me letters and I don't dislike him, so I'm thinking that I'll marry him. Okay, so Um, Yoshiko had at least kind of considered it. Yeah. Whether or not they willingly went into this particular ceremony. So he gave permission for Yoshiko to marry and believed that they had entered the marriage of their own volition, but that they had turned out ill-suited to married life Mm -hmm. later on. In any case, Yoshiko found married life difficult. Although they had a good relationship with their mother-in-law, other members of the family found them and their gender unsatisfactory. As well as that, they'd not lived in China, like in the long term, or among Chinese-speaking people since they were eight years old, and so they found communicating quite difficult. They were also unaccustomed to the level of supervision and like control of your life that a married woman was under. At one point they wrote, my daily life was unbearably oppressive. If I wanted to even go out to the garden, someone would immediately accompany me. I had no time to myself. That does sound like it sucks. Yeah. Ganjajab eventually received a posting with the Mongolian Independence Army in a remote part of Mongolia, and Yoshiko accompanied him 
him there, but soon after Yoshiko left and the two never lived together again. Okay. Do they stay married? They stay like technically married, but in no way are they married. Ganja Jub gets remarried later on and Yoshiko takes great delight in like appearing as the first wife and bestowing gifts upon his child with the next wife. <laughs> <laughs> and Ganja Jub is like, can you, can you stop? I'm uncomfortable with this. So it's just normal and, and fine to have a second wife, yes. to be clear. Yeah. Because like, I know that um, Yoshiko's dad did, but Yoshiko's uh, dad uh, has is a like, different culture. Yeah, Yoshiko's dad had like one wife and a bunch of concubines and oh, that was okay. fairly acceptable. And this is, I think the legal situation here is that Yoshiko remains the first wife and the second wife is like technically a concubine. Oh, yeah. But oh, okay. nobody sort of treats it this way because Yoshiko has clearly buggered off. And that seems to have worked out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would be pretty wild from the second wife's position. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is sort of like mildly unwanted first wife turning up and giving her child presents. I mean, are they unwanted or do they not want to be there? Like, does it go both ways? Oh, yeah, no, no, no. To be clear, to be clear, Yoshiko is not uncomfortable with the new wife. Ganja Job is just uncomfortable with Yoshiko turning up when he's like, this marriage is over and I have oh, a new okay, wife okay. now. Okay. But um, there's not like enmity. It's just kind of like, no, we're it's just not like together. Awkward, yeah. <laughs> you are not really relevant to my yeah. life yeah yeah but yoshiko apparently really enjoyed playing this kind of awkward weird aunt role to the new yeah the new that's, pretty good. that's pretty good yoshiko having left the marriage is kind of at a loose end without financial support so they returned to japan briefly where they visited their older brother and then almost immediately left to shanghai they claimed that this had been an accident they wrote to shanli who was their brother from shanghai saying they'd gone to see off a friend at the harbor and got so involved in their conversation that they did didn't realize the ship was setting sail. <laughs> I don't um, know if I believe that, but it's pretty funny. Anyway, Shenli, after receiving the letter, soon realized that Yoshiko had not only gone, but they had disappeared with 2,000 yen from his house. Yeah, okay, I don't how, think that was an accident. How much is that in today's yen? Um, or today's- how much is that in today's yen in today's AUD? <laughs> <laughs> Amounts of money come up periodically in this, and obviously I can't give you an exact amount because sure. money doesn't work like that. But imagine it's like a substantial, but not like life-ending amount. Like oh, they've okay. absconded with like five hundred dollars or something. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. Well, that's not. A lot of so money. it's enough money to be like, hey, you were probably planning to leave, but it's not enough money to like ruin. Yeah, it's not going to like ruin his life. Like this is cash that he had in his house oh, at this oh, time. Okay. Yeah, they haven't like gone to the bank and defrauded him or whatever. Okay, <laughs> or like sold his stuff. They've just like taken the cash that he had in the house and gone okay yeah not a great piece of sibling behavior but uh, i accidentally <laughs> but like, fell go. on your wallet and then i accidentally stayed on this boat ah. <laughs> i'm so sorry Shanley. <laughs> um so this is the early 1930s now in shanghai yoshiko gained a name as kind of a hedonist and like a what do you call it a bad influence a party person yeah basically they had poor relations with their father had abandoned a husband generally wore men's clothing and they got out of bed at midday and stayed out of dance halls until dawn basically so they were quite notorious but living a fun life yeah that sounds like a very fun time in their life yeah i guess so yeah a fun time in some ways okay um, <laughs> in that like they're sort of you know they're having a fun time but they feel kind of dissatisfied oh, with okay. the life that they're living mm. so at one point, Yoshiko wrote, 
From the bottom of my heart, I feel jealous of those ordinary gentle housewives who see their husbands off to work in the morning and are eager to receive them home in the evening. If I just got the right opportunity, I'd really make a complete return to being a woman. They never do this, to be clear. Okay. Okay. And I feel like it's probably more reflective of the fact that they like attempted to make this marriage mm. and haven't been able to live the life that was expected of them. Mm. And that's like an easy example of a role to fit into. Yeah. 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 If they're dissatisfied with their life, that's an easy example of how like they could be satisfied with their life. Yeah. They're just I think... not going to be. <laughs> yeah. It sort of feels more like they're like, I had this opportunity to be this, you know, mm. to be this housewife and I threw it away and I don't know where to go now. So they have like a social circle now. I guess they do, but it's like Phyllis never really mentioned their social circle. Like there's mm-hmm. clearly somebody they're going out with. This is kind of the period when uh, Munamatsu Shofu, who wrote the book about them. The fake them. book. Yeah, yeah, the fictional book. He wrote the like book inspired by them, knew them. Oh, yeah. And he kind of remembers, <laughs> like they stayed in a room together and had like directly opposing schedules. <laughs> he was always like, Yoshiko was like, coming home just when I was getting up in the morning. This reminds me of, um... William DeBell? Yeah, who rented out his bed in London to like a Thief? criminal? Yeah. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, and they did like shift Because <laughs> they had shifts yeah. in the bed, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, they had they had two beds in the room, so they like slept side by side, and people apparently thought this was a little bit weird. And Shofu and Yoshiko were like, "No, we're two men in a room, basically." Or like, "We're two, you know." It's not like a man and a woman. Yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah, they were like, "It's just, it's just not relevant." Yeah, we're just two people sharing a room. They did not get an opportunity to become a housewife. And I would don't... be shocked if this story just ended with them becoming a housewife. <laughs> that is not what happened. They did not get that opportunity, and I honestly don't. Think they ever wanted it. But instead, what happened in October 1930, they met Tanaka Miyukichi, a major in the Japanese army who had been posted to the Japanese consulate in Shanghai. This does seem like it's going somewhere different than being a housewife. <laughs> it is quite different. They did have a, they began a relationship with him, but very much not in a housewife way. Um, Shofu remembers seeing them interact and being shocked by the way that Yoshiko very much took the kind of upper hand, like in charge role in their interactions. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Interesting and good. Um, there's no further information about that. Sure, very remembers, disappointing. Remembers being like, well, that was unusual. <laughs> And around this time, so just after he'd got involved with Yoshiko, Tanaka received a telegram from the commander in Manchuria saying that the Japanese army needed like an anti-Japanese incident of some kind to occur in Shanghai in order to justify Japanese military actions in China and draw attention away from their planned advance into Manchuria. Oh. So would you say we're entering the spy portion we of the We are entering the spy portion of this episode. Tanaka turned to Yoshiko to assist him and gave them 10,000 yen as a reward as well as a bunch of bribe money in order to arrange a Chinese terrorist attack by a group of Shanghainese factory workers on a group of Japanese monks. So when you say bribe money, you mean money to give to factory workers? Yeah, so basically Yoshiko took all this money to, and I forget the name of the factory, it's like a towel manufacturing factory, and was just like I'll give you money if you go and beat up these monks. Okay. And following this to organise a retaliation by a Japanese youth organization. So essentially the same thing. They went to an organization and they were like, okay, you need to go and trash the towel factory now. Which- so what are Yoshiko's politics like? Yoshiko's and alliances and thus forth? Politics and alliances. Partly Yoshiko just needs money right now. Sure. And partly Yoshiko 
personally is in this sort of awkward in-between place where they've always grown up in Japan, but they can't feel like they can't feel particularly at home in Japan because of the way that Japan feels about China. Mm. And so they maintain for their whole life that like everything they do is for the Manchurian people. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. And sometimes for like the, the reinstating of the Qing dynasty, but they're sort of in a weird, like either or they don't love Japan. They don't love China either. Yeah. Yoshiko also, because they've been brought up with this kind of idea from Naniwa that with the help of the Japanese, they're going to set up this Manchurian state. It kind of makes sense to them to assist the Japanese in taking Manchuria. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese propaganda around their gradually, like gradually spreading invasion of East and Southeast Asia overall is this like, we're going to free you from like Western (laughs) colonialism. And then we're all going to be in this kind of union against, against the dominance of the West. Oh, Oh, yes. No, we're going to pray you from Western colonialism and then instead bring you Japanese colonialism. I mean, that's 100% what happens, <laughs> yes. But they, they very much kind of frame it like, no, we're just here, like, helping you be free. Ah, yes. That old uh, cookie. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so this, like, ratcheted up tensions between China and Japan. And, like, assorted other incidents of this kind are being organized at the same time. Like, sort of fake sabotages and things like that that the Chinese are supposedly doing against the Japanese in Manchester and that kind of thing such that the Japanese are eventually like it just makes sense to invade them they're treating our country like this and Japan takes Manchuria and this is when Puyi crawls out of the woodwork (laughs) as discussed how Um, old is he now when are we So we're in the early 30s. Okay, yeah. Which makes him, like, he was six in 1912. Oh, okay. Okay, so he's an adult. He's like our age. Yeah, he's like our age. Um, He doesn't really know what's... He doesn't make the best decisions, but I guess that's understandable. Yeah, he's 25. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't be a good emperor either. So Japan invades Manchuria, and they reinstate Puyi, the previous, like, the last Qing emperor, as the ruler of the puppet state of Manchuria. So they're like, look, it's an independent Manchurian state like we said we would do and they put him in charge of it and Japan is very much in charge of it the whole time. I mean I think they did set out to do what they wanted to do though which is still something. Yeah. (laughs) More than I expected. (laughs) That's true when Naniwa started out with like you know the steamed bond fiasco it didn't sound like they were on a route to success. Naniwa was not like the only person Japan, I mean, who, yeah, but, no. <laughs> I don't think we would be where we are right no. now. Naniwa what I was going to say was Naniwa was not like the only person in Japan, even in like the 1880s when he did this steamed bun nonsense, who <laughs> had this idea that he was going to like go to China and somehow save the Chinese and get fame and glory somehow. Um, there are like assorted random Japanese people on every side of every uprising in mm-hmm. China in that like sort of 30 year mm-hmm. period mm-hmm. doing the same kind of thing. So Naniwa sounds kind of completely nonsense but he's not <laughs> but he's, he's he's not like an individual nonsense okay. it's like okay. a kind of cultural nonsense that china is like this sort of uncivilized yeah. wild west that needs japanese help oh yeah. yes this yeah, is very yeah. much an impulse that people have unfortunately yeah i would call it a white savior complex except that it's japan it's yeah. the kind of equivalent within a china japan yeah. context. yeah yeah so they set up Puyi as this like puppet emperor. And by this time, Puyi has a wife whose name is Wan Rong. And Wan Rong refuses to go and join Puyi in Manchuria. She doesn't want anything to do with it. 
Um, that kind of yeah. sounds wise, maybe. I'm a little frightened for a little bit. Yeah, she, she actually lives for many years. Oh, wow. Not, like, shockingly old, but considering the circumstances. But isn't about to get murdered? Than you, okay. Yeah, than you expect from the nature of this story. I'm just sort of trained to assume that, like, the last emperor or king or whatever will be killed. He is not killed. He okay. goes to prison for a while, and then later he gets a job as a gardener. Oh, nice. I remember that. Because at the end of that last emperor movie, he's yeah. just, like, working as a gardener in the palace where he was emperor which may be like creative license but that's how the film ends uh, yeah so yeah no he eventually gets a doing... job as a gardener and apparently is quite content in his old age but it's hard to say because it would be like yeah. very good kind of yeah, revolution yeah. propaganda mm. for him to be like content as a common man at the end of his yeah, life yeah, yeah that's true yeah. anyway so yoshiko's next mission after all this stirring up tension that they've been doing is to transport the Empress of China, or the ex-Empress of China, to Manchuria. To where she does not want to be. Where she does not want to be. And um, where is she right now? She's in, in Tianjin, which is in, like, northern coast China. Do you know where Beijing is? Yes. Okay, go, like, slightly southeast from there. Okay. The way that this story generally gets told is that Yoshiko goes and is able to persuade Wan Rong that she is not safe in Tianjin, and, like, sneaks them out of there in the boot of her car. On <laughs> <laughs> cover of darkness <laughs> in beauty and men's clothing it's mariko sneaking out the empress and the empress's little dog in the boot of the car and they're like <laughs> about to drive off and the empress is like no we're going back get my dog <laughs> and mariko is like all right i guess and goes back and like gets the dog what kind of dog is it it's like a little white dog of some kind of course I it don't is know. that fits the like stereotype <laughs> of like a rich person's dog they're obsessed with it's small enough to fit in the boot of a car with a grown adult lady <laughs> why couldn't she just sit in the car because she's the empress and but does everyone know what she looks like can't she just wear like plain clothing probably and just sit in the car like is that less suspicious <laughs> than if you search someone's car and they're driving with their lights off of and then there's a very fancy lady in the <laughs> probably anyway in the 1950s one of the empress's aides claimed that Yoshiko had in fact played only a minor role in this whole operation okay um and did not drive the car and did not hide one wrong in the boot That's disappointing um, but by this time Time, like the role of chief smuggler driving the car was given to Mariko in the book and Yoshiko had kind of taken it on as their own. Okay, so like, we actually, account. we don't truly know what happened. We don't know what happened, yeah. And this is something which happens in Yoshiko's life a lot. They enjoy being in the public eye, so mm. they really take on a lot of the things that happen in the uh. book, which are very, like, sensationalized because they're a spy novel, essentially. Oh, and yeah. It's just, like, true things that happened, and many of them, in fact, did not happen. I see. Like, definitively did not happen. Some of them may have happened. Some okay. of them did happen. We don't really know. Thanks, Yoshiko. <laughs> yeah. Just to give you an idea of the Yoshiko we're talking about at this time, this is an account by Munamatsu Shofu, who wrote the book, of his first meeting with Yoshiko. He is being picked up in a car by a driver that the Japanese military consulate in Shanghai has organized for him. And he says, The driver was a handsome, stylishly dressed youth wearing a banded standing collar and a blue woolen cap, similar to the kind students wear, with a splendid gold braided insignia. He had deep black eyes, a well-shaped nose, a charming mouth, and his face was the color of white peony petals. 
I had sometimes seen good-looking aristocratic young men in China, but this lad was in- incomparably beautiful. This is how Victor Hugo describes Entourage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I got inside the car, the good-looking fellow turned to look at me from behind the steering wheel. Muramatsu-san, I'm Kawashima. Oh, is that so? I was more than a little surprised. I had not dreamed I would now meet this famous person. Okay. I tell you that one so you can hear about how incomparably beautiful Yoshiko was at this stage. <laughs> and two, just to sort of give evidence to the fact that Yoshiko's masculine presentation wasn't like a weird blip in their youth. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 I have accepted this. Yeah, like yeah. they very much sort of dress and present as a man at various times for their whole life. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Is it because they're trans? It could be. <laughs> could it be. could be. At this time as well, so in the early 1930s, Yoshiko took on a companion whose name was Chizuko. What's a companion? It's unclear. Yoshiko sometimes called Chizuko their sister or their secretary or just their companion but at other times Yoshiko referred to Chizuko as their beautiful wife and had photos taken of them like styled like wedding photos with Yoshiko in a traditional man's kimono and Chizuko dressed as the bride. So I would say that would be a romantic partner of some kind. The fact that they called Chizuko their sister Mm. should not preclude should not be like oh I guess that wasn't a romantic relationship. The part where they like did a wedding photo shoot <laughs> kind of raises some questions about that. I have never done a wedding photo shoot with a platonic pal or secretary person. I do really like the fact that Yoshiko like chooses to do like queer photo shoots mm. about all the yeah. important moments in their life. They're mm. like, here's my trans photo shoot and here's my marriage photo shoot. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I do like that. In 1933, Yoshiko contacted Colonel Tada Hayao, the commander of the Japanese army in northern China, with a request. They told Tada that the unification of Manchuria and Mongolia would be easier if the Manchus took over the leadership rather than have the Japanese direct them, and suggested that if they themselves, if Yoshiko were to be given a command, they could get the anti-Japanese factions in Manchuria and Mongolia on site. Bold. Very bold. They don't have, like, military experience. No, not at all. Literally not. They just, like, just like called a dude. the head of the army in China and was like, hey, if you gave me some soldiers, I reckon I could sort this whole thing out for you. Well, that's a commander, like, thanks, bye. No. The commander was like, okay, and gave Yoshiko 3,000 troops. Maybe I'll oh try that. Oh, my God. It was essentially, look, it was essentially like a PR, like a propaganda yeah. exercise. Oh, yeah. It, like, it looked good for Japan and their claim that the Manchurian state was independent to be like, look at this Manchurian in charge of the army in Manchuria. Yeah. Um, or, like, part of the army in Manchuria. How did and people react to the fact that somebody assigned female at birth was in charge of the army? Or was, like, Yoshiko's kind of... Was Yoshiko well-known enough that people was like, oh, yeah, it's Yoshiko, we kind of understand? Yoshiko was quite well-known. So people sort of knew what, like, knew what you were getting with Yoshiko yeah. at this point. But there is a sort of ongoing thing in the newspapers at this time where some of them are publishing, like, look, Yoshiko Kawashima has been given a command in the army. How is this going to work? Yoshiko has no military experience. Why <laughs> are we doing this? Good um, questions. Which sometimes like Yoshiko is a woman and things like that come into it and then not valid not valid no military experience valid Valid. (laughs) yeah gender issues not valid um and then other papers will be like no we should give Yoshiko a chance as we know Yoshiko has been a highly successful spy as we know from that book which is not about Yoshiko but kind of is about Yoshiko as we know from this novel (laughs) I feel like also if people are saying as we know they are a very successful spy how successful are they (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. That's true. By having a novel published about your spy career, you ruin your spy 
my career. Yeah, I guess that's why they called the colonel and were like, I need a new career, can you give me some soldiers? <laughs> I messed up, Tada. <laughs> Become too famous for the Secret Service. So Yoshiko was given command of this small troop. Um, the news was published throughout Japan and China, along with a photograph of Yoshiko in a Japanese military commander's uniform. I love how many photos we obviously have of Yoshiko. There are so many photos of Yoshiko. Yeah. Great. They the was, blog's going to be so good. They were mildly famous. So, like, yeah. Even at this time, they were famous, like, as far as New York. The New York newspapers liked to publish, like, cool things that Eastern Jewel got up to. <laughs> anyway, so they were known as Commander Jin Bihui. I mentioned that they were going to have yet another name at that sure. time. Yeah. Um, I don't remember what the significance of this name is, but I remember it. It's essentially like a Mandarin version of their Manchurian name. Okay. Why would they not be known as a Manchurian name if it's like a because PR stunt about them being Manchurian? It kind of makes sense as like a China-wide propaganda act. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To okay. have them be like comprehensible to China. Okay. There's a lot going on. Yeah. There's a lot going on. Did you look at a lot of maps when you were doing this episode? Yeah. They didn't, as far as we can tell, they didn't actually do a great deal with this troop. Not yeah. that surprised. Not that surprising. It was a troop of like older like older soldiers of various kinds who were like past their prime in one way or another and yeah they, they didn't get up to a heap although they were often reported to be doing things <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> over time Yoshiko grew increasingly incensed by the Japanese military's actions in China which were overall like wildly inhumane like their treatment of civilians mm-hmm. was extremely bad I content warned for it even though I didn't go into any detail because people who know or have like family experience mm. of this may just want to skip it altogether. Yeah, they become increasingly troubled by what the Japanese military is actually doing in China. Is this when they were in like Nanjing? Yeah. Yeah, I remember learning about this at school. And at the same time, they've become increasingly disliked and distrusted by the Chinese government because they keep on getting involved with the Japanese military. And so the Chinese government exiled Yoshiko and they returned to Tokyo and like ceased their involvement with the military. They moved into a Western style hotel in Tokyo and adopted three pet monkeys which <laughs> soon became four pet monkeys as they reproduced yes <laughs> oh. it's queer monkey time it's queer monkey time I have the names of the oh, four monkeys the tone shift that just occurred though <laughs> yeah I don't know that's that is what happened they moved okay. into a hotel in Tokyo and adopted a bunch of monkeys so does it stop at four monkeys or are there about to be 60 monkeys it stops at four monkeys <laughs> okay. maybe after the first monkeys reproduced Yoshiko was like hang on I need to get my monkeys neutered or something <laughs> Can you do that to monkeys? I guess oh, you can. can. <laughs> anyway, the monkeys' names were Fukuchan, Monchan, Deko, and Chibi. I love them. That was the four monkeys. Um, Which is the baby? Chibi, surely. I'm not sure. I'm not sure, yeah. That's a baby name. <laughs> Maybe it's... They're all a baby name. <laughs> That's true, but like Chibi sounds the most baby. Yeah, I'm not sure which monkey was which monkey. Okay. Um, what kind of monkeys are they? It's a good question. I also don't know that, unfortunately. I wonder how big they are. We do hear of the monkeys several times again. Good. I really love just the sheer number of episodes we've done on people who own monkeys. At this time, um, Yoshiko also developed an intense friendship with a much younger Japanese woman, high school student, Sonomoto Kotome. Wait, what happened to Chizuko? Um, Chizuko was there for a while. She may have stayed in China. I'm not sure. Okay, so we just kind of don't really yeah, know I don't, now. I don't hear what has happened to Chizuko. Okay. Much longer. Chizuko was around for some time and seems to not be around at this time. Uh, Yoshiko takes on a different assistant who is a man and also does not appear to be in any kind of relationship with Yoshiko. Oh, okay. He's just an assistant. So yeah, Yoshiko developed an intense friendship with uh, Sonomoto Kotone, who was a Japanese high school student. Again, I don't know a lot about the relationship, but we 
do have a quote from a letter that Yoshiko wrote to Cotonet, which says, if we go to China together, Yoshiko was banned from China at this time, but was mm. trying to like overturn the ban. If we go to China together, it will be difficult for you to get married. Your schooling will be affected. You'll have to live apart from your parents. I've thought this over a lot. Even so, I wish that we could always be together. How old is this? Like late oh. teens, and Yoshiko mm. is probably thirty. Okay, That's troubling. Yeah, it's. I don't know enough about it to say exactly how troubling, but it is a weird thing to come up. Um, yeah, Kotone herself seems fond of Yoshiko. She remembers Yoshiko as a warm and gentle person with a kind of air of faded glory to them. Nothing in particular seems to come of this friendship beyond those letters and Kotone's sort of vague memory of I knew Yoshiko and they were nice and we were friends. Okay. Um, Okay. okay. <clears throat> um, I guess we just really can't know what was going on there. Yeah, we really can't know. I just sort of brought it up because I wish that we could always be together. It's kind of... It's very intense. Yeah, it's quite intense. I don't think that's something an adult should say to a teenager. <laughs> no. No. No, generally no. Although I guess maybe late teens has like slightly different has, yeah, I guess connotations it... at the time. At very best, yeah. it's borderline. Mm. Yeah. How did they meet? I'm also not sure Okay. About Literally all we <laughs> know is like Kotone has recollections about Yoshiko and a couple of letters that they sent to each other okay. Um, okay. and the only part of that I have is this one quote from a letter that Phyllis decided to show me. Phyllis actually incidentally did raise the possibility that Yoshiko was trans. Oh wild. Yeah. Nice job like, Phyllis. Phyllis like continued to use she for Yoshiko after this and generally sort of not go anywhere with that but did acknowledge that there were some gender things coming going on here that we might have modern words to describe that Yoshiko may not have been able to describe at the time. A step. Which was something. That's kind of in a way even more aggravating than historians who clearly have no concept of trans. Mm -hmm. Like that step where they're like, yeah, so like, you know, this woman seems to have wanted to be recognized as a man or as a third gender or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, you know, now we have terms for that. Anyway, so she was a woman and <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I was yeah. like, oh, wow, you've so close. Maybe you can connect some dots like and have some thoughts about your work. Yeah. yeah. It was a little bit like, like how that. long does it take to write a book? You had a while to like <laughs> ponder your choices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Phyllis also covered some things where I was like, this is clearly a conspiracy theory and you don't need to include this in your book. Um, oh, yeah. The book just has this vibe of like, she's trying to t- overturn every stone. Oh, yeah. Which is sometimes a good thing. Like, sometimes you can tell she's really got deep into trying to figure out which elements of the fiction book are fictional and which mm. are inspired by real events and things like that. And at other times... Someone needed to tell Phyllis to go for a walk. <laughs> yeah. I guess it would also be interesting to consider, and Phyllis, I guess, would have a good idea of this, or definitely a better idea of this than we do, how well known Yoshiko is in Japan and China, and whether so- some is- of those conspiracy theories might actually be things that are common believed that mm. kind of need to be debunked that we just don't know about I can answer the question about how well known Yoshiko is in Japan and China like Yoshiko is reasonably well known in China there have been like recent documentaries about Yoshiko oh, yeah. there have been a couple of books out in Japan so like Yoshiko is much more well known in the area than in English speaking places yeah. generally yeah I would sort of agree with you about the debunking thing except that Phyllis kind of left the door open for the four oh, and I'll yeah. get to the conspiracy theory part right at the end okay but phyllis kind of left the door open for these things to potentially be true okay oh that's not good um where i was like "Mm, 
I understand why you mentioned this, but I think as a historian, you should probably have been like, it seems implausible. Mm. Yeah. 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 Presenting information neutrally is not a neutral thing to do. Yeah. In 1941, the Japanese foreign minister, who had known Yoshiko as a child, persuaded the Chinese government to overturn the travel ban and let Yoshiko return to Beijing. Over the next few years, Yoshiko travelled back and forth between Japan and China a few times before finally setting up a permanent home in Beijing with the former. Good. <laughs> Good. Just thought I would be clear that the monkey came to. Good. So we're in like the mid 1940s at this point. Japan's defeat in the Second World War and their occupation of China ending are kind of inevitable. Yoshiko, with their longtime association with the Japanese military, was unlikely to remain safe after the war because of that mm-hmm. connection. But they refused to leave Beijing at this point. Several family associates offered to organize them safe passage to Mongolia, but. They are quoted saying, I've opposed Chiang Kai-shek's government. That was like the Chinese government at the time. I've opposed Chiang Kai-shek's government, but I have always devoted myself with great sincerity to the Chinese people. I won't run away or hide. At the trial later on, a judge asked them again why they had remained in Beijing, and they claimed that they hadn't wanted to travel because one of the monkeys had diarrhea. (laughs) They had become increasingly disillusioned with not only the behaviour of the Japanese military in China, but the way that they personally had been treated by Japan and the Japanese military. They said, I went back and forth across the China Sea thousands of times, disguised as a male student, a busboy, passenger of a third class ship, but nothing helped to make my dream come true. Their dream being this independent state Mm -hmm. of Manchuria that they were kind of indoctrinated to want. I was just used up by the Japanese army. Instead of fleeing Beijing as everyone sort of wanted them to, they stayed in their house with their four monkeys and hired a biwa player. A biwa is like a Chinese lute kind of, to play for them and took long afternoon naps. So on August 15th, 1945, Japan surrendered in the Second World War. The Japanese military essentially abandons their puppet state in Manchuria and at the same time abandons all of the Japanese immigrants that they fought brought in, and that includes Yoshiko. Which means a couple of months later, on October 11th, Yoshiko was arrested in their Beijing home and taken to prison. Um, They were manipulated into giving an extensive confession, which included a bunch of the probably untrue spy stories, mm-hmm. or at least the, you know, wildly embellished spy stories, and this was followed by an equally dubious trial. So when you say manipulated... Essentially... That's not, like, a euphemism for torture, to be clear, or... It doesn't seem to be, like, torture in the sense that, like, you know, physically they were hurt, but... They were, they had at the time, they'd been on morphine for uh, like back pain issue and they were in withdrawal from the morphine. I think withholding medications is torture. Yeah, that's, that's fair. That's fair. No, I don't know what like the Geneva definition. Yeah, well, that's not really yet relevant. That's true. <laughs> I don't really know either. But yeah, in any case, they were like suffering withdrawal from their medication. Um, mm. They did sort of try and like give a more like toned down version of the confession and they were told, look, just tell us everything you've got and that will probably look better for you okay okay which at that point they sort of came out with everything even the like less true things Mm -hmm. following this there was a trial their earlier fame was a huge draw card and a crowd gathered in and around the open air courthouse where it was held to watch i feel like i mean i understand why we have public trials and like the transparency Mm -hmm. and accountability are important but the thing where people come to gawk at trials is just like so uncomfortable 
uncomfortable. After the first day, the court had to be adjourned after one of the crowd broke through the fence separating the observers from the trial and they moved it to a much smaller indoor venue with far fewer observers. Their conviction was a foregone conclusion. They had done many things with the Japanese military and there was photographic evidence, Mm -hmm. but their sentence still had to be established. And honestly, Yoshiko's defense, such as it was, seems like kind of a mess. They did have a defense team. I don't know what their defense team was doing. In order to escape execution as a traitor to China, the defense team claimed that Yoshiko was a citizen of Japan rather than China. They also claimed that Yoshiko couldn't have done a bunch of the intelligence work that they were accused of because they didn't have the grasp of Chinese language that they needed. To back this up, Yoshiko insisted on having a translator at the trial. It's not really clear whether Yoshiko needed the translator or not, potentially. I mean, even if they were like quite conversationally good in Chinese, like in a legal setting, I feel like that could make a lot of sense if they were like educated in Japanese and had spoken Japanese for a lot of their life. At the same time as trying to convince the court that Yoshiko was Japanese and so couldn't be a traitor to China, they were also kind of trying to convince them that everything that Yoshiko had done had been like in service of Manchuria and the Manchurian people. Mm-hmm. Like all both of these things can obviously be true. Yoshiko was both raised in Japan and was a Manchurian, like trying to fight for the independence of Manchuria. Mm. But it kind of appeared the defense at the same time was saying, oh no, Yoshiko is loyal to Japan and so can't be a traitor to China. And Mm. oh, Yoshiko has been working for Manchuria as a part of China this whole time. Oh, I see. So they're sort of simultaneously saying, oh no, no, Yoshiko's just loyal to Japan because Yoshiko's Japanese. And saying Yoshiko has been serving China this entire time by trying to help Manchuria be a part of China. Yeah. Yeah. The other significant issue with the trial was that the prosecution turned to the book, so the fictionalized version Mm. of Yoshiko's life as evidence several times to say, look, Yoshiko clearly did this. This fiction is based on the life of Yoshiko, which Munamatsu Shofu had never claimed was true, had always been like, I made this fiction out of Yoshiko's life. Yeah. But they still used it. In the end, Yoshiko received the death penalty. Some of the last things that we hear from Yoshiko are that they missed their monkeys in prison dearly. Even today they wrote, my heart aches when I think about how cute Monchan looked when he twisted his, twisted his head and looked down from the Sano Hotel's second story window. Hmm. So that was the Western Hotel that Yoshiko lived in with the monkeys. When I remember Fukushan's face, tears come to my eyes. Hmm. Sometimes as I think of these things, I turn to the sky above and call out their names in a loud voice. Oh, who looks after the monkeys? So I don't know what happened to all of the monkeys. The oldest one had died of old age by this time, and I don't know what happened to two of them. We do know where the final monkey ended up. Probably the youngest monkey, I guess. So the monkey's new owner gave a brief interview as part of the sort of press nonsense surrounding the trial. After she was arrested, the monkey's owner told the reporter, no one wanted to take care of him, so he was sent to my house. He's now living in a passageway in my house and eats steamed buns and rice with vegetables every day. He's very well behaved and helps to look after my house and catch lice. He enjoys smoking and sometimes he goes off for a while to meditate. So that's the last piece of information I have about any of the monkeys. Okay. That seems like a happy ending. It's weird that a steamed bun is here again 
We've come full yes. circle. <laughs> full circle. Although Yoshiko's former tutor, who I mentioned right on mm. right early on near the start, worked on collecting signatures for a petition to get Yoshiko pardoned, and Yoshiko wrote to their adopted father asking for him to confirm their Japanese citizenship, which he could not do because he'd never entered Yoshiko mm. in the household register as a child. In the end, on March 25th, 1948, Yoshiko was executed by firing squad. After their death, Chinese newspapers claimed that Yoshiko had escaped from prison and that the dead body was a substitute. Is this the conspiracy theory we yes. spoke of? The Japanese mass media reported that Yoshiko had survived execution as well and fled to Mongolia or the Soviet Union. A priest did confirm, like, a priest did see the body before cremation and confirmed that it was Yoshiko, but the priest did not know Yoshiko particularly well. It seems unlikely given that we've never heard anything from Yoshiko since. I mean, you wouldn't hear anything if you were pretending to be dead. I guess you? so. You know, I don't know if it's true or yeah. not, but I don't think that's solid evidence. That once you've fled, though, do you have to pretend to be dead once you're out of the control of... Yeah, if Yoshiko made it to the Soviet Union. And Yoshiko doesn't really seem like the type of person to... Lie low. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Like, Yoshiko made public announcements all the time during yeah. her life. Yeah. But I also um, feel like um, debunking this in this way kind of indicates that we're taking it seriously to a degree. So just yeah. to be clear, is there any evidence for this at all? No, not okay. that not that okay. I can establish. Like, yeah. not even that Phyllis could establish. I just thought I'd bring it up because I mentioned yeah. the conspiracy theory earlier. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, it very much read to me much more like like a sort of conspiracy theory about a famous spy. Yeah, I guess did about. Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. You know, as a if there's a famous spy who's been in the newspapers for a long time and everything, and they've supposedly been killed. Obviously, you know, if you want to sell a paper, that's a great story to come up with. There are spies. Yeah. Spies escape. It's what they do. I can say that even more succinctly and just say it sounds like a BuzzFeed video. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. And they, they did ask, um, they did show like a photograph of the body to one of Yoshiko's siblings who said, no, I recognize the hands and feet that looks like Yoshiko, even though the face wasn't visible. I don't think I would recognize a photograph of your hands and feet. I mean, they had, they apparently had notably like small hands. Okay. So I don't know, maybe they found another small handed person. But yeah, in any case, yeah, I feel it's more of a BuzzFeed made unsolved situation than it is a real <laughs> likely story mm, mm, you know, yeah there's a small window of possibility i guess but i don't think we don't have any evidence to believe it happened yeah we don't have any evidence there was a body the body was verified mm -hmm. by a priest the body was cremated also just asserting that somehow they broke out or were broken out of prison and swamped with someone raises so many questions yeah about how and by whom and yeah and who the unlucky person was who had small hands and therefore had to the be killed. Yeah. The story went that there was a family with a terminally ill daughter who happened to resemble Yoshiko. That sounds paid to more do a swap and I was like, that doesn't paid. sound realistic. As in the like family somebody was paid. paid. Yeah, somebody paid the family. That's so ghoulish. That's awful. So yeah, that sounds like you said, even more sensational. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't particularly think that that was worth this kind of seriousness that Phyllis took it with. Mm -hmm. And that's why I mentioned earlier when we were talking about how Phyllis turns over every stone that sometimes she goes a little bit too far. Mm. I do remember that you content warned for execution by firing squad, but I foolishly did not realise that that would be of Yoshiko. Oh, and it did sorry. not dawn on me until Japan surrendered 
that that was about to occur. I'm very sorry that yes. that was unexpected. And I very much thought when I content warned, I was like, oh yeah, they'll assume that Yoshiko is going to die at the end. And now that you bring that up, I'm like, there's no reason you would think no, that. Yoshiko no. lived through a war. Anyone could have been executed yeah. by firing yeah. squad. Until Yoshiko was on trial, I was like, wait a second. Mm. Yeah. Which, yeah, I mean, I guess just kind of feels like we should talk about it more because it's such a significant thing to happen to someone. But I don't think there's really anything to be said for it apart from that that's quite horrible. I do think, yeah, the whole sort of trajectory of Yoshiko's life did make me quite sad because mm. they were clearly kind of used for yeah. these kind of ill-conceived political ends from the beginning all the yeah. way through to the mm. end. Mm. And they often seemed, I wouldn't hear it as much at the end, but I was just thinking about that point when they were in Shanghai and they were sort of saying, you know, I could have just been a housewife. And I think we saw at various points throughout their life, they just seemed kind of dissatisfied with how their life was going. Yeah. And, and like that that seems to both be like a reflection of like their gender and the fact that like they couldn't quite find a place that worked for their gender in terms yeah. of like why couldn't I just have been a housewife and had it work for me to be a woman but also in terms of kind of their political role and kind of finding a place between Japan and China and Manchuria where they felt they could actually accomplish something and yeah there is one point like very late in their life before they returned to Beijing phoned the Japanese prime minister and got through to his wife and left a message where they were like um can you speak to him for me i think i can help i think i can help create peace between japan and china and the prime minister naturally was like i don't see how you would yeah. do this and did not get back to them but i think that sort of adds to what you're saying yeah. they always have this sense that they're meant to be doing something better and especially just with how they were raised like it mm. seems like they were really raised with this idea that like it was going to be them they were going to come in and like make Manchuria independent yeah and bring back the Qing dynasty to china and yeah yeah I mean, it's not surprising that they had that dissatisfaction and that sense that this is what they should be doing with it, given that this was obviously something they were indoctrinated yeah, with yeah. incredibly yeah. deeply. So you're right, yeah, it is quite sad. Yeah, yeah. I did I did think it was quite a sad story, mm. honestly. It was. Um, with that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. If you found that episode interesting, you can find the rest of our episodes on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever wherever else you listen to your podcasts. If you liked what you hear, then you can leave us a review, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. That review really helps us to find a wider audience. If you do leave us a review, we might read it out loud on air. And I think Eli is going to read me one now. Yes, this review uh, is five stars and it comes from user ADD Cure from America. I'd like I guess to know about if you have that, please contact the podcast at careerfactor.gmail.com. You'll get more episodes faster. Uh, it is titled The Hosts Are Perfect Human Beings Who Should Be Rewarded um, and it reads, having discovered this podcast a couple of weeks ago, I've already joined Patreon and told several people Aww. to do the same. Aww, My you. particular passion is Irene, who referred to Caligula as Bootykins, so this one's for her. <laughs> oh, I don't I've ever been at someone's particular special favorite before. No, you have. You have, yeah. Because for yeah. a while I was the only one that nobody had messaged oh, okay. being like, Alice okay. is my favorite. We were just saying that so people will mention you. No, no, because somebody did. Somebody did. Um, that said, I love every single person involved in this production. Their hard work and humor are delightful. Oh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is a very nice review. And I'll read one more review quickly. This one is also five stars. We don't really read the ones that aren't because they're kind of either five stars or one star. Yeah. Uh, and it comes from Joey Science, who is also from America. And the title is Queer and Teen. <laughs> <laughs> 
I got extremely lucky that early on this year, my sweet boyfriend recommended Queer as Fiction to me. I had already started putting together a queer history presentation discussing the black queer artists who were instrumental in the development and popularization of blues music in the US. That sounds incredible. And he thought that this podcast would be useful for me, and he was extremely correct. But honestly, useful isn't even in the top five things I would choose in describing this podcast. During quarantine, it has been a lifeline, a respite, a safe haven, a delight, and a joyful education in my own history. I'm wearing the t-shirt I bought to support this podcast as I'm writing this. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, I'm so grateful for the work of everyone on the podcast, for the pieces of hope and wonder and determination. Just hearing queer friends talking to each other about their other queer friends has been... I don't know we did that. I also like the implication that the historical figures are maybe our queer friends. They are our queer friends. Has been powerfully restorative during a truly horrific time in the US. Hmm. The only sad thing I have to say is that I'm now caught up and have to wait between episodes. Oh no. And then there is an emoji that is like a colon and then like several underlines and then a colon. Uh, a uh, semicolon yes, yeah. I mean. Oh yeah. yeah semicolons. Yeah. So it's it cry. Yeah, um, I understand. Please stay safe, friends. I hope one day that you'll do a bookstore slash coffee shop slash femini- feminist collective tour so I can thank you effusively <laughs> in person. We have definitely talked about uh, visiting America and meeting our listeners Yeah, that is possible. If yeah. I'm ever in America, like, I will post on Queer as Fact social media about it immediately. Yeah. yeah. Um, Alice and I were meant to go to America this exact year. We would have probably just got back. <laughs> yeah. But obviously we couldn't. So we will do this and we will post – when we're just in bars in major cities and you can come hang <laughs> yeah. with us yeah but yes thank you thank you so much um i hope that you are staying safe as well um and that you feel a little bit better about the situation in the u.s now that the election has passed and gone as well as it could thank you for writing a review that is more articulate than many of our episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when people are like, I feel like I'm listening to my friends hang out in their reviews because it makes me imagine that I have these like potential queer friends all around the world. You do. Yeah, you do. We do. Yeah. Yes, we do. Yeah. It's very exciting. We got an email from Luxembourg the other day. Oh, did oh, we? Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah. Anyway, if you send us a review, we may read yours as well. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. And if you want to contact us directly, you can send us an email. Or if you have a look on our website, our postal address is up there and you can send us snail mail if you're keen. It only takes approximately seven months to arrive from the USA. <laughs> this is true. It was Lewis, wasn't it? I lose. <laughs> yes. Um, somebody, we did receive a card from someone which was postmarked May 17th. <laughs> last week it arrived. Last week. So if you send us anything in the last like six months, it could still be out there. Don't stress. I will just quickly interject that our email is queerasfact at gmail.com and we are queerasfact in all three of those platforms because Irene did not say. I did not, you're correct. That's <laughs> and our web- key information. And our website is queerasfact.com. Yes. <laughs> you can support us financially through Patreon or you can buy Queer as Fact merch through Redbubble. You can also get on our website, which is queerasfact.com, to find a list of our sources for each episode. We'd like to respectfully acknowledge the Yellowcoat Willem clan of the Boonwarram. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. We'll be back on December 15th when Eli and Jason will be talking about 1985 film Nightmare on Elm Street to Freddy's Revenge. Yep, that's what we're doing. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it's gay, I don't know. It's so gay. Oh really? Okay. Anyway, thank you for listening and we will see you then.